Hello and welcome to Camp Kaiju Monster Movie Reviews. We are your hosts, Vincent Hannum and Matt Levine. And we're talking about all our favorite monster movies, the good, the bad, and the downright campy, and asking if they stand the test of time. Traditional kaiju creature features, space invaders, the supernatural, and everything in between. All strange beasts welcome here. Camp Kaiju is sponsored by BanditsEmporium.com, where you can shop exclusive monster-inspired t-shirts with part of the proceeds supporting this show. BanditsEmporium.com, hit the link in our bio. As they say, we sell shirts, and as Camp Kaiju says, stay campy, everybody. And welcome back, Matt. Thank you, Vincent. It is so good to be back on the podcast. It's been too long. Yeah, but, you know, you are, you're hitting the pavement at the Minneapolis St. Paul International Film Festival, telling us what to watch, telling us what not to watch. Thank you for your service. Oh, well, thank you. It's It's been fun, if a little bit exhausting. I've been trying to see at least one movie a day for the past week and a half or so. Um, yeah, it's it's been fun. I feel like the days where I could watch like four or five movies in a row are kind of long behind me. <laughs> like now when I do that, it's like, oh, my brain is mush, you know? Um, so yeah, it's it's been it's been great. A lot of good stuff, some bad stuff. Are there other film festivals around town that you attend? Not so much around town. There is also the Twin Cities Film Festival, which it's it's slightly confusing because that is has such a similar name as MSPIF, the Minneapolis-St. Paul International Film Fest. But uh, the Twin Cities one, I think, is held in the fall, and it's a lot of local stuff, which is great. It's a good showcase for like local filmmakers and actors and whatnot. Um, I've been to the Madison Internet, or actually, it's the Wisconsin Film Festival. It's held in Madison. Uh, I've been to that one. I've been to the Milwaukee International Film Fest. So I would say there are some regional ones, but not a lot of uh, festivals in the Twin Cities, per se. Well, cool. We should start a monster film festival. Yes, please. I would love that. <laughs> I feel like right now that's in like the pipe dream stage. Yeah. But like it's, you know, hopefully it'll happen someday. If we're doing this, like that's like 10 year, 15 year plan. Absolutely. Yeah. We can make it happen. I mean, I had a great time at uh, G-Fest in Chicago last year, last summer, yeah, yeah. Um, which is, is similar. So, so yeah, let's do it. Let's make it happen. So all you listening, visit patreon.com slash camp kaiju and make that pipe dream happen. Any any little bit helps to creating that monster movie fest for y'all. So, And let us know what you want to see, too, like on social media or like uh, drop us a line. If, uh, if you go to our website, like we definitely would love to hear what you want us to talk about and maybe even screen someday as part of our um, imaginary film festival. So let us know. We will have to have a real gong then in person. We probably will. Yeah. Although, you know, part of me wants to still have the imaginary gong where people like pantomime it. But <laughs> but if you have a film fest, you got to pull out all the stops and get the <laughs> get the gear, I, I suppose. Uh, it's been a long time since you and I have just done a podcast episode together. So I don't know. I think because this is like my pick, I'll do it. And then your pick next. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Well, here it goes for Jason, our new patron at Camp Kaiju. Can't thank you enough for your support. Uh, you're joining some noble ranks here with Kelly, Chris, Frank, Peggy, and our wonderful anonymous donors. So here you go. <laughs> Ugh. whoa well done did you see the 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 like the the bits of metal coming off of that one i saw it i thought it was i, I thought i was hallucinating but well done vincent uh reverberation worthy of our lovely patrons i dare anyone to come on to camp kaiju and hit the gong as hard as that. It's even better than it sounds, let me tell you. Uh, you can also visit CampKaijuMovieReviews.com to check out all the extra reviews that Matt and I are writing on a weekly basis about all sorts of monster movies. You can also find links there to our Patreon account, Patreon.com slash CampKaiju, where for as little as $3 a month, all the way up to $15, you are getting swag, you're getting merch, you're getting bonus episodes, and extra special content um, about the Valley of Guanji, for sure. Uh, whatever doesn't make our feature show here. 
our patrons are going to get um, are going to get it. So, yeah, Matt, what are we looking forward to here the next couple of months on Camp Kaiju? Oh, let's see. So much good stuff. First, I want to shout out the special episode that you had with Max recently about the movie Glorious, right? Yeah, yeah. So Matt, Max was a trooper. It was his pick. He brought this uh, HP Lovecraftian monster movie to the show. That was a, a festival favorite itself last year. It's a small movie that has a lot to say. So I, I would recommend Glorious for sure. I've I've wanted to see it since I heard about it maybe like half a year ago. Very, very excited to watch that soon. And speaking of bonus content, um, Max and I, we chatted ad nauseum about other Lovecraftian movies that will be featured uh, as bonus content. So Max goes through, he's like an encyclopedia of Lovecraft, and he is just talking about the movies like Reanimator, which is like a well-known one, but also like obscure titles in the realm of cosmic horror. So... Uh, yeah, things to look forward to on the bonus content. Cool. I, you know, I haven't even heard that yet. So I definitely am looking forward to doing that as soon as I can not go to M. Spiff movies all the time. I definitely will be checking <laughs> that out. Um, but yeah, other stuff that we have coming up. Our next episode uh, is going to be about the movie Wolf, directed by Mike Nichols, starring Jack Nicholson. Uh, this is a movie that I'm bringing to the podcast. I've never seen it. I've heard good things about it. Uh, it's a werewolf movie, as you can probably tell by the title. Um, I've heard that it's more about the publishing industry than mm-hmm. werewolves per se, which I think sounds intriguing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we'll we'll be talking about that soon. Then we have Godzilla versus King Ghidorah, kind of getting back to some classic kaiju fare. Uh, after that, we'll have Porco Rosso by Hayao Miyazaki. I'm very excited to talk about Miyazaki on the podcast. We haven't really done so yet, so that should be fun. And finally... For the first half of the year, rounding out our series is going to be The Blob, the original The Blob, if I remember correctly. It's a good lineup. And then we're going to take July, celebrate uh, Kaiju as we call it on our show, a month long of traditional Kaiju features in the spirit of G-Fest. So our movie tonight, not a Kaiju per se, but it does involve a large I'm going to say T-Rex, although technically it's described as an Allosaurus in the production notes of this film. But, you know, Allosaurus, Tyrannosaurus, it's a large bipedal carnivore known as Guanji. And we're going to Guanji's Valley tonight. I, I just love this film. I'm just going to get into it. Why did I choose this movie? Because this was not on our original lineup when we announced our season in January. If you remember, I had It Came From Beneath the Sea, giant octopus picture from Ray Harryhausen's stop motion uh, workshop. It's a black and white film. It's very much set in the 1950s Cold War era. It Came From Beneath the Sea. I feel like it's a it's a subject we talk about a lot on Camp Kaiju, naturally. And I thought, let's look at some other Harryhausen projects. I landed on the Valley of Guanji. It's from the late 60s, which I think is a interesting nexus of of monster movie history where it's it's after like the peak of the 1950s, early 60s boom. And it's right before the real uh, almost grindhouse fair of of the 70s. And like, where does it fall in there? It's not super well known, but it is a cult classic. I love that. Yeah, I I didn't really know very much about this movie before I watched it a couple of days ago. I, I, you know, of course, know the name Ray Harryhausen, and I've seen a couple of the films that he produced and did the special effects for uh, in the past. Uh, Clash of the Titans is one of them. Uh, Jason and the Argonauts, he did that one too, right? Um, So I've seen a couple of them, but didn't really know anything about this one. As I'm sure we'll get into, I, I think it was his last film that he did the special effects for where it was like uh dinosaur based like prehistoric creatures and all that mm-hmm. um which is fun it's fun to see and like you said like that kind of context in the late 60s when like you know the film industry was very rapidly changing it's kind of cool to see his work in that context so yeah a really interesting movie so the film is about at the heart it's it all begins with the discovery of a miniature horse technically an eohippus is thought to be of a species 50 million years old 
But what do you know? One's alive, and it prompts members of a down-on-its-luck Wild West show to venture into Mexico's Forbidden Valley, quote-unquote, in search of worldwide fame and untold wealth. There they are met by prehistoric monsters, including Guanji, a giant allosaurus that decimates their ranks, until the team of cowboys, rustlers, and desperados subdue the beast. They shackle Guanji, naturally, and take it to the city to be the starring attraction of their show. The situation quickly deteriorates after Guanji breaks its chains and wreaks havoc on the city until the finale when it is sealed within a burning cathedral doomed to die. A great climax, if I may say so. Fantastic climax. Yeah. And it yeah, and it's interesting because it's it's not like the most original story. It's a it's a critique as well as a strength that it is like the King Kong story where these intrepid adventurers go into an unknown land, bring back a beast to star in their show. It breaks its chains and kills a bunch of people. With that said, yeah, that climax in the cathedral is, I think, stunning. Totally agree. Yeah, Um, there are some parts before that, you know, like for a lot of the movie, I wasn't really sure how I felt. I had some criticisms, but also some things I liked about it a lot. But that ending is like, wow, it's. Like you're really bringing it home with this ending here. You know, it looks great. And it's a little bit more like somber than I expected it to be. Yeah. Uh, Reminded me of Rodan in that way where the mighty beast is fallen and you really feel for it. I, uh, you know, like I, (laughs) I care more for the dinosaurs than like almost any of the human characters in this movie. So it's like it is, you know, it's like a pretty bittersweet to see it vanquished at the end. Yeah, yeah, Guanji didn't ask for this. Right. They intruded upon his home and forcibly took him out, you know? Uh, all right, we're Team Guanji here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Matt, who is in this movie? Uh, yeah, so the film stars James Franciscus as Tuck, uh, the dashing hero rogue who left the Wild West show years ago and is now finding success with a new tour. Uh, Tuck had a romantic past with TJ, who we'll talk about shortly, and is now trying to persuade her to join his new show. It looks like he has a very painful sunburn <laughs> throughout the entire movie. That's the main thing that I remember about his performance in, in the film. That's so true, though. And his, like, how white his teeth are. I'm blinded by the light here. <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't know if it's just, like, weird makeup, or if he just, like, actually looked that sort of uh, prefabricated or something, you know? But he has, like, a very plastic look to him. Total Ken doll. Yeah. Looks uncomfortable wearing all of his leather clothes in the hot sun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sort of your prototypical late 60s dashing hero. And for better and for worse, I would say. Yeah. Uh, the Valley of Guanji also stars Gila Golan. I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly. Uh, she stars as TJ. She's an Israeli model and actor. Uh, in the Valley of Guanji, she is a headliner of the Wild West show. Her main act is jumping into a flaming pool on horseback. Not one of the more convincing special effects in this movie, I would say. No. Uh, TJ still loves Tuck, but is loyal to her friends in the company. Her Israeli accent was so strong that they had to be that it had to be dubbed over by a different actress. And then playing sort of her father figure in a way is the ringmaster of the Wild West show. The actor, of course, is Richard Carlson as Champ. Love Richard Carlson. Love talking about him. He is in so many classic monster movies. First and foremost, Creature from the Black Lagoon. Then it came from outer space. He was in a, another one called The Magnetic Monster. And I just had to throw this in here. Hold That Ghost. Um, it's an early 1940s Abbott and Costello movie. Regarded as like their best. And Hometown Hero. He's a Minnesota na- native. Born in Albert Lee and studied drama at the University of Minnesota. Nice. We should have a Richard Richard Carlson series here on Camp Kaiju. I would love that. It's kind of what I why I included all those movies. <laughs> cool, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's that's impressive. That's a a roster of great. Well, I haven't seen all of those, but presumably great monster movies. The only one I haven't seen is the Magnetic Monster. Mm-hmm. I don't get a great sense from it, but yeah, the others are legitimate classics. Yeah. Um, Lawrence Naismith plays Professor Bromley. He's an old quirky paleontologist. Uh, Lawrence Naismith was a prolific film and TV actor himself. And I just got to say, I feel like he is doing 
the 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 John Hammond type character from Jurassic Park. And it's, it's the second Jurassic Park thing in this movie where I'm like, is that a coincidence or not? Probably not. I have a feeling that Spielberg loved this movie and many other like monster movies of its ilk, you know? Yeah, totally. Spielberg just told it, Richard Attenborough, be that character in Guanji. And Attenborough's like, what movie? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I feel like Lawrence Naismith's um, pseudo British accent in this movie provides a lot of camp. It's very hilarious. And, you know, with Attenborough, you don't even have to fake it. Like, it's a genuine British accent. So one of probably many ways in which Jurassic Park is you know, superior to the Valley of Guanji. <laughs> yes. Matt, that's the most unfair comparison you could ever say. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> I take it back. <laughs> um, a few more people in the cast I wanted to mention. Frida Jackson, she plays Tia Zorina, an old gypsy, quote-unquote, woman who warns the Wild West show of the curse of Guanji. And I say gypsy because that's the the nomen- that's the that's the term used by the film but um, Gypsy being a racial slur towards the Romani people. Um, I'm going to stop talking about it right now because we could <laughs> talk about it at another part of the episode, I think. Yeah, I think so. There is some weird racial stuff in this movie for sure, which I think can like simultaneously be contextualized as like the characters themselves are racist and like the sort of novelty Wild West show is like you know, not trying to be like culturally respectful and all that, you know, so it kind of makes sense for like the story and the setting, but still is kind of hard to watch at times. Yeah, it just doesn't it doesn't age all that well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Uh, summarizing her film career, film critic David Quinlan wrote that she, quote, created some memorably grim portraits fewer than one would have liked, but she was really too ferocious for supporting roles. I don't know. I just like that because I think her part is thankless in Guanji. And yet it she is like the catalyst for the story. Yeah. And I think she's kind of like the moral voice a little bit, you know, like even though she's like cheesy and over the top and wears an eye patch and she's like a blind quote on or, you know, quote, gypsy, unquote. Um, still, you know, she warns them that like taking these prehistoric animals out of the Forbidden Valley is going to doom them all. And she's basically right. So. Yeah. Gustavo Rojo is Carlos. He's the main rival for TJ's affection. For the miniature horse, whom everyone's dubbed El Diablo, and leads the rival band of cowboys into the Forbidden Valley. So he is definitely the foil to Tuck. Indeed. Uh, Behind the camera for the Valley of Guanji, we have the director, Jim O'Connolly. He was mostly a director of low-budget films in the United Kingdom. I kind of looked through his filmography and didn't really see too much that I recognized. Uh, He directed some episodes of the TV show The Saint, that's pretty much the only thing that jumped out at me. Uh, we have cinematography by Erwin Hillier. Music by Jerome Morris. Uh, the film was produced by Charles H. Schneer and Ray Harryhausen. They were longtime collaborators. Uh, Schneer produced all of Harryhausen's work except for One Million Years B.C. in 1967. Uh, in fact, I think the Valley of Guanji was kind of a reunion for them. They had worked separately for much of the 60s, if I remember correctly, and then kind of got back together to make this one. Um, but yeah, Ray Harryhausen. I mean, he's probably kind of like the draw for this movie, right? For the Valley of Guanji. That's like pretty much the only thing I knew about it before I watched it. Yeah, I think that's not an understatement. Um, he never directed his movies per se, but he was always the special effects guy behind them. Yeah, so Ray Harryhausen, he uh, he was an American-British animator, special effects creator, who uh, created a form of stop-motion model animation known as Dynamation. He worked with his mentor, mentor uh, Willis H. O'Brien, on Mighty Joe Young. Uh, Willis H. O'Brien was also the uh, special effects director for King Kong, right? The original 1933 film. And The Lost World from 1925. Other Lost World. Cool. It all comes full circle. Yep. Yeah. So Harryhausen and O'Brien's work on Mighty Joe Young won the Academy Award for Best Visual Effects in 1949. Uh, Harryhausen's film Jason and the Argonauts from 1963 uh, features the iconic sword fight with seven skeleton warriors. That's definitely like probably the only scene that I remember from that movie, but it's an amazing moment. Harryhausen's last film was Clash of the Titans, which Vincent just brought up. Brought up. Uh, that was also 
Freddy Jackson's last film. Uh, after Clash of the Titans in 1981, Harryhausen retired. I mean, I haven't even seen Jason and the Argonauts, but we've all seen that moment with the the fighting skeletons. Like iconic. Yeah. You know, it's it's like it's similar to like the stop motion animation that maybe we saw in King Kong, like, you know, uh, 30 years or whatever beforehand. But just like the leap and like technique and like the color cinematography. And uh, yeah, it's it's similar, but like totally in a different world at the same time, you know. And and when you're thinking about this dynamation or stop motion animation, they are literally making clay models of, say, King Kong. And they are moving it ever so slowly and then taking a picture of it and then putting it together like a flip book. And when you think about something as intricate as the skeletons in Jason and the Argonauts, like that's really intricate. That's not like a large gorilla. You're talking about little fingers that move like anything, swords and shields. There's a lot of moving pieces. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, like the illusion of movement and like, um, you know, like actual figures kind of moving through space or whatever. It like, you know, I'm not going to say that they're like necessarily convincing in Jason and the Argonauts, but like sort of like in the kaiju movies that we've talked about in the past, like it works for like the fantasy world that it's trying to build, you know, and it's totally immersive in that way. That's that's such a great way to put it. Obviously, like we can say that's just a man in a rubber suit. Yeah, but in this world that looks real. Right. Yeah. Like you when you're watching it, you're not like, oh, that looks fake. It's sort of like you're wowed by like the imagination of it, you know? Yeah. So during his life, Harryhausen's innovative style of special effects and films inspired numerous filmmakers. Uh, in November 2016, the BFI compiled a list of those present day filmmakers who claim to have been inspired by Harryhausen, including Steven Spielberg, who we were just talking about, Peter Jackson, Joe Dante, Tim Burton, Nick Park, James Cameron, and Guillermo del Toro. Others influenced by him include George Lucas, John Lasseter, John Landis, Henry Selleck, J.J. Abrams, and Wes Anderson. And if I can mention one more thing about Henry Selleck real quick, uh, I was thinking of him because like he has so many great recent stop-motion animation films like A Nightmare Before Christmas, uh, James and the Giant Peach. Uh, the one that just came out last year, oh, what is the name of that? Uh, Keen Peel are in it. Wendell and Wild, that's the name of it. Oh. Um, so Henry Selleck, you know, he's kind of the one that I think about when I think of recent stop motion animation. And it's like really sleek, um, beautiful, beautiful work. But at the same time, like they kind of have the benefit of like a huge team of animators and like CGI to like uh, contribute to the illusion and like get rid of some of like the jerky motions or whatever, you know. But Harryhausen didn't have any of that. Like he had a team of animators, but he didn't have CGI and all that stuff. So right. even more impressive when you think of what he was doing, you know, 60 years ago. Yeah. What I love about Harryhausen is how him through Willis O'Brien just is like the whole breadth of the history of filmmaking, just about in this field of stop motion animation and Creature Features, Willis H. O'Brien is the grandfather of this stop motion or dynamation. He worked on the dinosaurs in The Lost World based on Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's novel of the same name. It's a great silent movie from 1925. Uh, Willis O'Brien then perfected the dinosaur look in King Kong, of course, with Mighty Joe Young then in the 40s. That's where Ray Harryhausen, as a young artist, was mentoring under O'Brien. Harryhausen went on to make a name for himself with one very important movie in the history of monster movies, The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, which in turn was a direct inspiration for Toho's Gojira 1954. So you just see it all coming together, like the family tree of monsters. You can just you can just trace the lineage. Which I think is really cool. I just think it's so cool what you said, like, you know, the entire history of film can kind of is like paralleled a little bit through like O'Brien and Harryhausen. Like, I think it's a good point because like before O'Brien, like I'm trying to think of like fantasy movies before them, like silent movies from the early 20th century. And like really the only thing I can think of is George Melies, who was experimenting with like stop motion animation, but like in a totally different way. It was kind of like you know, stop the camera, move something off screen, then start the camera again. And like, it's the illusion of stop motion kind of. Um, but, you know, like, yeah, I, I just think it's a really good point. And I hadn't really thought of it all that much that like Willis O'Brien kind of is like the birth of fantasy in film, right? Yeah, I would say so. That kind of like 
take you to another world, but it's still Earth. You know, in the Lost World, it's a it's a plateau high in the Amazon, shrouded in clouds. King Kong, it's it's an island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. You know, sorry, just one other name I wanted to throw in there. I'm thinking of the German animator, uh, Lotta Reiniger. Her movies were all animated, so it's very different. And she had like sort of uh, paper cutouts. So she was doing stop motion animation in a very different way. And she was telling the stories of like Cinderella. She has a great movie called The Adventures of Prince Ahmed. Uh, and those were in the 20s, I believe. So I did just want to throw her name out there because she's another like huge influence in the history of animation, but doing a totally different thing than Willis O'Brien did. So uh, yeah, uh, the godfather of stop motion animation and fantasy. That's awesome. Yeah, but still, I'm sure they they took things from each other. And I mean, that that's the early days of film, right? Everyone was, it was kind of a wild west, no pun intended. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the, uh, how many layers to this onion? The production backstory of the Valley of Guanji goes back to those days. By 1969, when Guanji was released, O'Brien was dead. But it was his story idea that dates back to at least 1942. He wanted to make a dinosaur and cowboy movie. And his original story was called The Valley of the Mists where a T-Rex would be discovered hiding in the Grand Canyon by some cowboys. This was so much a thing that even like dioramas and sketches had been made, locations had been scouted. Um, This was all through RKO Pictures, but the studio halted production before it ever got to the shooting stage. So Wanji would lie dormant for a few years. Ooh, well said. Uh, O'Brien did later produce a Mexican film with a similar premise called The Beast of Hollow Mountain. That was in 1956. Uh, That was the first film to depict cowboys and dinos, which may be, along with Valley of Guanji, the only two, or at least like two of a small number. I think they're like the only two, I don't know, that are, let me put it this way, in recent history. I think there have been dinosaur and cowboy movies that might be like from the sci-fi channel or like really straight to video type stuff. But when we're talking like feature length, theatrical events, no, there's like only two still. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. An extremely rare subgenre, right? So yeah. Yeah. uh, There's already some novelty value there with that for sure. Um, So after the beast of hollow mountain was produced in 1956, O'Brien died shortly thereafter in 1962, only six years later. Um, so after O'Brien died, the Valley of the Mists, the story that he had developed, you know, 20 years ago or so, eventually morphed into the Valley of Guanji. Charles Schneer brought the story rights from O'Brien's widow. And um, then, you know, he and Harryhausen reunited to, to make the film. Yeah, they shot it on location in Spain, obviously put so much work into it. We'll get into the special effects in a little bit, but For all this work, talking over 20 years of development here, you know, stops and starts. The film was unceremoniously dumped onto a double bill with some biker movie. Warner Brothers was going through a management change at the time. The The new administration didn't know how to market it. They didn't know what to do with this movie. So they just kind of put it out there with no no fanfare whatsoever. Part of the reason for Guanji not making a big splash, this was kind of past the heyday of big monster movies. Um, Harry Housen's movies himself by this time had moved more into the, um, I don't know, like it's not a dig to say like maybe more kid-friendly fantasy low-budget realm. And that's not a dig by any means. But in the 50s, Harry Housen movies were A-list pictures. Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, Earth versus the Flying Saucers. It came from beneath the sea by the 60s. As we saw across the genre, even with Godzilla movies, box office revenue was taking a hit. Yeah, and in Hollywood, especially, I think it's kind of interesting to think about that. I won't get too far into this tangent here, but like, you know, new new American cinema was kind of like in its full swing at that time. Like Bonnie and Clyde came out in 67. You have The Graduate in 68. Uh, you know, uh, this in the early seventies, only a couple years later, you would have movies like the Godfather, Chinatown, stuff like that. So, you know, like Hollywood was changing and audiences, you know, for the most part wanted more adult, like sophisticated fare to like set, you know, 
like to differentiate from television a little bit. Like, you know, TV was this big thing for, you know, uh, relaxing after a long day. And cinema was kind of seen as like the sophisticated art form at the time. So a movie like The Valley of Guanji, you know, it was at least perceived that there was not a big audience for that. Just going back to that new management, um, there's a Harry Hasen quote he once said, I think is is interesting. He said, we got trapped in a change of management shuffle at Warner Brothers. If only they had publicized it properly. They just dumped the picture on the market. A lot of people who would have loved it never got a chance to see it, never knew it was playing. If I am putting myself back in time, this movie's on a double bill with some forgettable biker movie. It's probably playing on a drive-in. I'm probably making out with somebody anyways. I think that's an injustice to the craftsmanship of this movie. Like whether or not it's a, you like the movie, you can't deny the the artistry and the, the effort to create the special effects. Absolutely. Yeah. And like, like you just mentioned, like this had been in development in, in some way, at least since the early forties. So like to have that go on for 25 years or so, and then to have like the kind of just deflating anticlimactic reception that this movie got, you know, like what a bummer for Harryhausen and like O'Brien was probably rolling over in his grave, you know? It kind of just missed the missed the moment, but it did live on as a cult classic, which is which is nice. So some some of the cast and crew were pretty unhappy with the director, Jim O'Connolly, uh, who seemingly lost interest in the project about halfway through. Uh, the screenwriter, William Bast, who was brought on to kind of update the storyline that O'Brien had developed about 20 years earlier. Uh, William Bast said, quote, the director was monumentally stupid. Uh, Charlie. So Charles Schneer, said William Bast, opted for someone who matched his own insensitivity. O'Connolly started tampering with the script as they were leaving. I thought this is going to be a mess, end quote. So at least the screenwriter, William Bast, was no big fan of the director of this movie. Monumentally <laughs> stupid. <laughs> yeah. How accurate in your estimation is that is that quote for the final result of the movie? It's hard to say, I think, uh, you know, like the special effects are the big number one draw of this movie. And I think those can be attributed to Harryhausen. I think there are some moments of like visual excitement. But it's hard to know if that's O'Connolly's doing or if it's the cinematographer. Uh, let me remember his name. Edwin Hillier, I think. Erwin Hillier. Um, so, yeah, it's hard to say. It, it does kind of seem like there's not like a distinct visual style. There's not really like I don't think the plot is really developed all that carefully, you know. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty easy to imagine that O'Connolly was just driving the bus, but like didn't really like provide too much artistic input. You know, I, I think that's probably pretty feasible in this case. If it weren't for Harryhausen's work, like if this was just a straight Western, I would call this a pretty mediocre, bland Western on its own. Yeah. But you had monsters. It elevates it a little bit in my estimation. <laughs> yeah, totally. And, and, you know, like we mentioned before, the climax is really great and very exciting. But again, like there are so many special effects in, in the climax, like right. maybe Harryhausen actually directed that more than O'Connolly did, you know? I mean, not again, not to diss O'Connolly. He has a lot of films under his belt, but I don't I don't know about the reputation of those films. Yeah. And I, I yeah, I don't want to assume anything, like you said, but like the fact that like I didn't recognize a single one of his other titles probably does not bode very well, you know? Right. It is interesting because like I think it kind of, you know, like every film production is a collaboration and there are like hundreds, if not thousands of people involved in the making of it, you know. So I feel like something like this really emphasizes that very much, like maybe the people that are responsible for like, you know, the moments of excitement and imagination in this movie, you know, may not have actually been the director. Yeah, just driving the bus, like you said. One thing with the the legacy of the film, I just wanted to add in. So there's a scene when our heroes first get into the valley and the first dinosaur they come upon, you know, in hindsight, they, you know, everyone calls it the ornithomimus. I don't know if Harryhausen knew what an ornithomimus was, but this like very fast running small dinosaur and it's running away from them. And then out of nowhere, Guanji, the T-Rex snatches up the ornithomimus and it's, it is the inspiration for what happens in Jurassic Park when the T-Rex does the same thing in front of Sam Neill and the kids. 
I mean, that that can't be a coincidence. Like, you know, Spielberg saw this movie at least once in his life. And it works well in Valley of Guanji, too. I think it's kind of a surprising, fun moment when that happens. Yeah, it's the first time we see the danger of the movie. Well, on that note, BanditsEmporium.com is the official t-shirt partner of Camp Kaiju. Check out BanditsEmporium.com or hit the link in our bio to check out their selection of monster-inspired tees. Part of the proceeds goes to supporting this very show. Visit BanditsEmporium.com. Whatever your style, they have you covered. As they say, we sell shirts. As Camp Kaiju says, whoa, look out, there's Guanji. Ooh, Mr. <laughs> Uh, I, I like what you wrote here in the notes for this episode. So this is an example of the weird West genre. So hybrid genres that are combining with elements of the Western genre with those of fantasy, horror, science fiction. Uh, I feel like John Carpenter's Vampires is kind of another example of that, which we talked about. Even Prey. Yeah, for sure. Honestly, um, Wild Wild West, the TV show, is often cited as a prime example. Um, maybe Westworld. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so beyond just dinosaurs and cowboys, I just love the name Weird West. There's another one that I saw recently called White of the Eye, which is another good example of that. It's a very surreal horror movie. Uh, Apache lore and culture is kind of like a big part of that movie as well. So uh, yeah, lots of examples out there for sure. So yeah, I I guess uh, one thing I wanted to bring up with that you know, like it is there is like a quite a bit of Native American exoticism in the movie. We see that, uh, you know, towards the beginning with this kind of novelty Wild West show that TJ runs, which is on its last legs, not very successful. And we see like some cowboy and Indian fights, which are like I kind of alluded to this before, but like it is the kind of thing that you would probably see in like a cheap like traveling circus or whatever at the time in like the late 60s. Um, but it is, it is still strange to see like, you know, so many characters or extras or whatever in like Native American garb and makeup and stuff when it does not seem like any of them are actual Native Americans. Uh, so, you know, just viewed from a modern lens where like, you know, uh, representation, cultural identity is, you know, rightfully so kind of on the top of everybody's minds. It is kind of hard to see some of that stuff these days, you know? Yeah, and if we're going back to the Romani characterization of the film, because that is the trope that's exist that's persisted, I would say, in in American filmmaking, certainly. That's all we could speak to. Like you watch The Wolfman, mm. you know, the most famous, you know, quote unquote gypsy character. So there's a lot of tropes in this movie in related related to the characters, I think that are both strengths, both its strength and its weakness. So you have the 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 strong jawed, you know, blonde haired dude. You have the dark haired Latin lover. You have this eye patched, curse wielding old woman. You you have the 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 um the quirky old man scientist. And it's just like if you love pulp stories from like the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, this is your jam. This is it. This is every archetype conceivable, but that doesn't mean it ages well. In <laughs> fact, it means it it it's really creaky at, at certain parts. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, you know, I think Lope, the young Mexican boy that becomes like the sidekick of Tuck, the, you know, like you said, the blonde hair, blue eyed, like square jawed hero. Uh, yeah, that's a little weird, too, because Lope's parents are both dead, it seems, but we don't know exactly how I'm pretty sure. Um, and, and Tuck even says early on, like, oh, I bet your parents are like your dad is having an all day siesta. So it's just like right off the bat. Not great. You know? Yeah. And I totally agree. Like it, it, yeah, that's the thing with, with tropes and stereotypes, like when they're done bad, they're offensive. There's no way around it. Like, okay, he's Mexican. So his dad is lazy and sleeping all day. No, that doesn't fly anymore. That never flew. Like, that's terrible. And I, you know, like, I, I do try to recognize that, like, oh, it was a different time. And, like, you know, it's, uh, you know, I, I try to sort of, like, take that with a grain of salt sometimes. But, um, you know, it's a, it's a different atmosphere that we're living in now. So, uh, yeah. yeah. And, like, I think it's kind of a big issue in this movie, too, because we're, like, Tuck is the main character. We're supposed to really kind of, like, root for him and want him to get back with TJ, uh, this woman who seems to be so much better than him. Like, it seems like he does not deserve her, you know? 
Uh, there's another line pretty early in the film where they're kind of having an argument and Tuck says that he's going to have to like put her across his lap, uh, like suggesting that he's going to spank her, obviously. Um, so this guy, like right off the bat, you're like, wow, what a dick. I guess I'm supposed to root for this guy, you know, but so it goes with the, with a movie like this, I suppose. Yeah, but I get it. Yeah, he's not likable. And that's echoed in other reviews I've read, including sort of this. Uh, I, I added the first time I watched this movie, I was like, oh, my God, I have to talk about this because um, I as I see it, it's an incursion. We have these white characters going into well, they're in Mexico for their show, which is fine. But the the audacity to go into the Forbidden Valley, just take what they want and, and claim ownership over the animals and the the possessions of a country that is not theirs. And to me, the, the allegory for the U.S. relationship with Mexico historically, especially at the turn of the 20th century, the United States had no problem uh, with business ventures, just kind of taking advantage of Mexican interests and resources. Yeah. And I like the reading that maybe that is intentional. Like, you know, if if the story really is a story of white people coming in, exploiting and taking what's not theirs, and then ultimately being doomed, which is kind of what happens. That's like what the Tia Zadora character, you know, she warns them that's going to happen. And then that's exactly what happens. So, so I, yeah, I mean, like, if that is intentional, that's kind of a brilliant subversive pit, bit of political commentary, you know? I think so. And that's why I was like, woo, this is good stuff. This is what we talk about on Camp Kaiju. It is, yeah, like that possible interpretation kind of like rubs up against the sort of like, yeah, very archetypal and right. stereotypical, uh, <laughs> you know, depiction of like the uh, many of the characters in the movie. But, uh, you know, that's it's a product of its time and place in that way. I also just wanted to add um, a theme I liked the second time I watched it around was viewing characters as sort of being the last of their kind. Obviously, the dinosaurs in the Forbidden Valley are the last ones out there. But you have this the 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 humans within the Wild West show. They're not doing so well. They're poor. They're struggling for audiences. They're of a dying breed themselves. Um, and then again, historically, putting on my history teacher hat, the West, the American West frontier had closed by this point. Um, Buffalo Bill, he had a he had a Wild West show. This was historically accurate. Um, because the West itself, as a concept, as a as a physical place, long over, no more frontier. I like that theme. And I think, you know, in the great moment at the end when the dinosaur is killed in the church and we have this kind of heavenly light coming through the stained glass window, you know, again, it's kind of a somber moment. And it's like the extinction of the dinosaurs all over again. And uh, yeah, it's it's surprisingly pretty downbeat. And I think, you know, you could even extend it further and say, sort of like we were just talking about, like maybe this movie itself is one of the last of its breed where like, you know, kind of like Saturday morning adventure serials that's just like fun. I don't want to say just because like you said, there's more to it than that. But like, you know, a fun adventure story like this, American cinema was going in the opposite direction. So the movie itself is kind of the last of its breed, you know? I like that. And clearly it was Harryhausen's last movie like this. Um, Clash of the Titans is he's back into his Greek mythology. So... Yeah. Well, just the theme, you know, again, familiar from King Kong and also Mothra, which we talked about on the podcast recently, but just capitalism and commercialism, you know, the kind of allure of all these white people going into the Forbidden Valley, taking what they think is rightfully theirs for money or for, you know, stature, which is kind of what the paleontologist is, is there for. Um, so, you know, the the allure of exploiting things for your own gain and kind of ignoring like the people and the animals and the things that are actually there that you're exploiting. It's a common theme, but when done right, it's very effective. Um, so I want to talk about the special effect work here, and I'll just read this. Um, so close to a year was spent on the special effects. Okay, there were over 300 Dynamation cuts in the film, which was a record number for Harryhausen. He put in his time for this movie. One particular sequence is always called out in analysis of this film. So there's a scene when the cowboys are roping Guanji to tie him up. It's like a great rodeo scene. This scene was the most labor-intensive animated sequence of the movie. It was achieved by having the actors hold on to ropes tied to a what's called a monster stick that was in the back of a jeep. So 
where Guanji is in the frame, just imagine a Jeep with a monster stick in the back and hidden by the Guanji body in the final film. And the portions of rope attached to his body are painted wires that are matched with the real rope. So this is the intricacy I'm talking about. Harryhausen had to look at the frames of real rope and then with his animation match it perfectly. And that rope is flying and it's really tiny and it just... I couldn't stand sitting in a chair just doing that forever. I can't imagine the level of like meticulous craft that that involves, you know? And I, I read this description that you just read, uh, like I read it online here, like several times, four or five times, and I still couldn't fully wrap my head around like how they actually did it, which is like a sign of like extremely imaginative, careful special effects work. For those of you listening, just look up that scene on YouTube and just try to look for flaws. They're very hard to see, if at all. I was studying it, and the ropes match up. I mean, you can tell when it's animated and not, but it's it's very meticulously done. Yeah, for sure. There are a couple other special effects moments, probably inevitably, that you know you can find fault with. Maybe like the scene with the Pteranodon when it like comes down and like swoops up Lope, and then like shortly thereafter, I think it's Carlos who's like wrestling the Pteranodon and like breaks its neck. Basically, like they look totally different. The Pteranodon and like the, as like the stop motion flying thing, or as like the puppet that the human actor is wrestling with, like do not look the same at all. But you know, like that, I'm kind of nitpicking a little bit because most of the special effects are really um, wonderful to look at. You know, but you're right when Guanji knocks himself out on the rocks. Yeah, and then they cut to a real model of the T-Rex, it looks very different. And I like the idea of mixing in the live model with the animation, but yet it's not convincing enough. Yeah, like it seems like maybe the level of care that went into like the the model that the humans interact with is not quite at the same level as Harryhausen's kind of stop motion animation. Yeah, good intent didn't, didn't pull through. Yeah. Eight out of 10. <laughs> uh yeah what'd you like about this movie so the good stuff i you know i kind of brought this up briefly before but i think there are some moments with a lot of visual excitement in the frame where like things are happening in the foreground and the background simultaneously and it's just like there's so much to you know uh that that catches your eye it's pretty impressive in that way like there's one example where some flamenco dancers are clapping in the foreground and some horses are kind of like riding riding in the background i think this is in the wild west show and it's just like kind of eye popping, like there's so much to look at and it's very, very exciting. Uh, there are some really fun special effects, like the fight between the Allosaurus and the Styracosaurus. Yeah. Um, which is, I, I assumed it was like a T-Rex and a Stegosaurus. So it's basically that kind of thing. Um, looks great. It's really amazing. Kind of harkens back to King Kong, the original King Kong. Um, the first appearance of the Forbidden Valley also looks amazing. It's like... As far as I could tell, it's a mixture of like live action footage and like a like a background matte painting. I think uh, looks very very cool. The fiery climax in the church looks great. It's like a surprisingly kind of downbeat ending, like we talked about. And the last thing I'll say, you know, Tuck and TJ, I wouldn't say are like especially deep or complicated characters, but they do at least have a little bit of like character progression and narrative arcs. You know, at first Tuck is very. You know, like I said, just kind of like a horrible, like a pretty repugnant character, you know. But by the end of the movie, you know, Tuck wants to settle down. He wants to get this like ranch in Wyoming and he wants to move there with TJ. But TJ is the one who's like, no, I want to make all this money and like tour this dinosaur all throughout the world. And so yep. she's finally convinced otherwise by like the destruction of her town, basically. Or not her town, but the town that they're in. Yeah. I appreciated there was a little bit of like character, like dynamism there, you know. And some role reversal, too. Yeah. He wants to be the man wants to be the domesticated home take home care, home giver, caregiver. Um, and the woman wants the business. She's the capitalist and she just wants to make some money. I'm like, go for it. Yeah, totally. I, that was unexpected and maybe kind of like reversed some of my reservations I had about the movie at first. Yeah, I yeah, I think that this movie is loaded with imagery that more than makes up for me the the kind of more bland, just like cowboy adventure stuff. A uh, couple of things I wanted to uh, shout out. There is a scene with Tuck is at a creek getting water in his canteen. 
He's all by himself. And in the background, he's right in the foreground. Lots of great foreground background shots. Uh, coming around the canyon wall is Guanji. Mm. And Guanji doesn't see Tuck. And Tuck doesn't see Guanji. <laughs> Guanji's just like drinking water. He's like scratching his nose. It's just very natural. And then chaos ensues. But I really like that shot. And then um, when when Guanji is in the cage in the arena at the end, when the curtain is lifted to show Guanji to the audience, Guanji is eating a man at that moment. And he's and it's horrifying. It's just like such a great violent image for the audience to see. Not just a ferocious dinosaur, but you're being you're seeing someone eaten alive. That is a great scene, especially because like before that happens, there we're like inside of the tent and it's like a bright red backdrop. And like we we know what's going to happen, basically, that this guy who's who's trying to like uh, free Guanji, I I think to like, I don't know, (laughs) convince like the the owners of the Wild West show, like the great injustice that they've done or whatever, you know. Anyway, there's this great lead up to the moment and it's like this bright red set. It's very, very cool and very visceral. Okay, what didn't you like about the movie? You know, I do think it takes too long to get to the cool fantasy stuff. I think it's maybe like half an hour, maybe 25 minutes when we're focusing on Tuck and TJ and Carlos and like TJ's dad, like all these different human characters who at least initially are not very interesting, in my opinion. Um, I I was getting restless. I was like, come on, let's get to the dinosaurs here, you know? So I feel like that takes a little bit too long to get to. I, I mentioned like the kind of discomfort around seeing you know, characters from different communities portrayed in like less than flattering or stereotypical ways. That is a little bit hard to get over at times. Um, and, you know, the the movie was shot in Spain. I was very surprised to learn that it was shot on location because I don't think the movie really takes advantage of that. Like I assumed that it was shot in California because, you know, we don't really see that many like interesting towns or communities or land formations or landscapes or anything like that. So, you know, if you're going to go to all that expense to shoot overseas in Spain, and maybe there were other production reasons for them to do that, but, um, you know, like make it look unique and kind of out of the ordinary. I didn't think the movie did a good enough job of doing that. Uh, I'm actually not as big a fan of the Western genre as I'd like to be. Um, Cause I think when, when it's not done artfully, and takes advantage of the natural landscape and and communities there, it can fall flat. And I get a little bit of that with this movie. Maybe it's O'Connelly's direction. You know, it's not a very bright movie, as bright as you'd think it would be, mm-hmm. as it could be, as it should be. Um, you know, all that aside, I I also think again what I love about this movie, I also admit is its its flaws such as the stock characters and the derivative story. Like it is the King Kong story. Like there is nothing new about it. Yeah. Like I think, you know, maybe if we had focused more on like the, the gypsies, the Romani characters or whatever, like I'm imagining a movie where like, maybe they were, they are the protagonists. They're the main characters and they're trying to sort of like protect this Valley or whatever, you know, like I can see like a maybe more interesting story to be told from that, you know? Yeah. Some campy stuff though. I got a couple. Uh, I'll let you throw some things into the into the ring here. Okay. For me, the camp value is mostly from the paleontologist character. Uh, Bromley, is that his name? Yeah, so the actor, um, Lawrence Naismith, his line readings are wonderful. Like, I, what were we talking about recently? Oh, uh, Udo Kier and Flesh for Frankenstein and how he can make, like, any, like, seemingly normal line just sound, like, totally ridiculous and over-the-top and cheesy. I feel like Lawrence Naismith also has that ability. There's one one line in particular where uh, Tuck is telling him to like run away from this Allosaurus that's about to get him. And the professor is like, ah, whatever, I'm going to stay here. And then he sees the T-Rex coming, the Allosaurus or whatever. And he's like, great, Scott. Just the way he says that <laughs> is so dumb and so charming. Really, really yep. love it. Um, yep. So yeah, it's mostly the professor character and this, yeah, this wonderful actor, Lawrence Naismith. Uh there's also a really funny moment I wanted to bring up where Tuck is riding his horse and he's like try- trying to keep the horse in one location and he just like puts the reins around like a sort of medium sized rock, which the horse could just like easily move like it's uh, 
And and then like Tuck walks away and assumes that the horse is going to stay there. It's a very small, <laughs> very dumb and really funny moment. I loved it. Yeah, there's a lot of like little small, dumb, funny moments in this movie. Um, when Carlos is wrestling the Pteranodon to save Lope, they're on the ground. He's he's interacting with the live uh, model. And I was like, there's not an ounce of sweat on Carlos's body. He is a clean man. And he just wouldn't be. Everyone's so clean in this movie. Um, I just feel like their clothes would be in tatters. They'd be drenched in sweat. It's like the, the it's the lack of realism in that way that just makes the movie a little silly for me. Also, there's a great moment. There's a there's a side character called Rowdy. He's part of Carlos's gang. And they're they're shooting Guanji, I think, or they're shooting at some dinosaur. But it's they all realize that their their guns are full of blanks because at the end of the day, they are performers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a funny moment. I like that a lot. You know, like I, I feel like this movie is an intentional comedy a lot of the time. You know, that's that's a very effectively funny scene. I think. <laughs> okay. Anything else, or do we want to give it our final rating? Uh, I mean, that's about all I have. Do you want to do the honors? You didn't get to do that last week. I guess so. Yeah. Um, and it's my maybe my favorite part of every episode. So uh, we have four ratings here at Camp Kaiju. Number one, it's a timeless classic and definitely stands the test of time. Number two, there may be some antiquated moments, but overall, it's great and stands the test of time. Number three, it may be historically significant or just fun, but it does not stand the test of time. And our lowest rating, it is not worth revisiting and definitely does not stand the test of time. I think that this movie is great and stands the test of time, despite some antiquated moments, some dated moments with the characters, just the visual aspects, like the pictures it paints, the animation still holds up. And for that, I think whenever I have a kid, I'm going to throw this on. And they're going to love it. And I'm going to love watching it with them. <laughs> so it stands the test of time for me. I love that. I love that hypothetical scenario. Um, I'm excited for that to happen for you as well. Uh, I think if I, like, if I had seen this as a kid or like before now, and I'm, you know, when I'm 38 years old, I probably <laughs> would like have fallen under its spell a little bit more. I think I'll have to give it one rating lower than you. Um, it is a very fun movie. I think it's, historically you know interesting to think of like it's kind of context in ray harryhausen's career and where where american movies were going at that point in time uh for me it does not stand the test of time i think it's you know aside from the special effects which are great i think the moments of visual excitement are maybe a little bit too few and far between and the human characters for the most part don't really do it for me all that much up until the end when they get a little bit more interesting um yeah so for me it is fun but it does not stand the test of time I get that 100%. But I, I hope that we talk about more Ray Harryhausen movies in the podcast because I love him. And like, yeah, that's where the imagination comes through in this movie. And I'm excited to talk about him more in the future. Yeah. All you listening, let's get some more Harryhausen on the podcast. There's so much to choose from, including Mighty Joe Young. I've never seen that movie. Have you? No, I have not. The original or the remake. Yeah, I remember the remake, I guess, when I was a kid, but... But like, I didn't know that that was actually a remake of of a classic Academy Award winning special effects movie. Me either. Yeah. Which and, and, you know, like I kind of after I did learn about the original one, I assumed maybe it was kind of just another King Kong ripoff. But but maybe not. I, I definitely want to check it out. <laughs> but yeah, but maybe <laughs> maybe O'Brien wasn't the like the most original story writer. He was just like, King Kong works. Let's do it over again. <laughs> yeah. King Kong with dinosaurs. King Kong with with, uh, with aliens. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, if the special effects are good enough, then, then that's okay. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us on the Valley of Guanji. We can't do it without you. If you liked what you hear, please tell a friend, leave a rating and review, and visit CampKaijuMovieReviews.com, Patreon.com slash CampKaiju, or Instagram for more monster movie content. We can't thank you enough. And before I forget, Camp Kaiju is sponsored by BanditsEmporium.com, where you can shop exclusive monster-inspired t-shirts with part of the proceeds supporting this show. BanditsEmporium.com, hit the link in our bio. As they say, we sell shirts. And as Camp Kaiju says, 
Thanks again, friends. Until next time, stay campy. There's a big lizard back there and he's heading this way. Now get aboard! Rates!